when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Pay. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing whether Jeremy Corbyn's plan to form a caretaker government to stop No Deal Brexit has any chance of success. We'll be looking into the role of the Liberal Democrats and independent MPs, and if this magical plan to form an alternative government fails, what other options do MPs have left this autumn to stop Boris Johnson's plan? I'm delighted to be joined by our Chief Political Commentator Robert Shrimsley, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, and from the Institute of Government Think Tank, Mary Thinmont-Jack. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also do like a good positive review. August is generally the quiet, silly season in Westminster, where stories that don't have much chance of impacting reality get picked up. In the eyes of some MPs, one of those is the idea that pro-Remainers in Parliament could bring down Boris Johnson's government and replace it with a caretaker administration, or as some call it, a government of national unity, to ask for another delay in Brexit to thwart his efforts to take the UK out of the EU, possibly without a deal. This idea was boosted by Jeremy Corbyn this week, who said he would be willing to work with other opposition MPs to form a temporary time-limited government with a specific aim of writing to the EU to ask for another extension and then call an election. But there are formidable challenges ahead for this plan, and MPs are also looking at other ways to try and stop Mr Johnson's efforts to take the UK out of the bloc by October the 31st. So Miranda Green, we're very much into the weeds of processology here. Parliament is away, MPs are off sunning themselves in Devon, Cornwall and even some parts of Europe. And a lot of them are very unhappy at Boris Johnson's manoeuvres on Brexit. They think he's taking the UK straight towards leaving the EU without a deal. So when they come back in September, they're going to try and do something about it. And I guess the first thing everyone's talking about is a no confidence vote in the Johnson government. Is that going to pass? So it's actually a two-stage process because it's one thing to bring down Boris Johnson's government in a no-confidence motion and then it's another thing to come up with an alternative. And as we've seen over the last few months, the House of Commons sadly has failed to coalesce around alternative propositions every time it's come to the crunch in votes on Brexit, whether that's been a second referendum, some sort of customs union proposal, Norway plus, any of these options all were rejected, failed to find a majority, which is why we're in this situation with the clock ticking down to a no-deal Brexit on October the 31st. So this new proposal where Jeremy Corbyn wrote to other opposition MPs saying, I would be willing if we bring down Boris Johnson to camp in Downing Street temporarily long enough to ask for an extension to the October 31st date and to call a general election 
really what we're trying to do is to work out whether this is still the realm of fantasy politics, i.e. a game where we all sit around and pick people we think are acceptable from the different political parties who we would like to see in government rather than the red team or the blue team. Or is it actually a realistic proposal to stop no-deal Brexit? It's into the weeds immediately, as you said, because a caretaker government with Jeremy Corbyn at its head has been seen as unacceptable to not just the Liberal Democrats, but also to some other independent MPs. So immediately you're into toing and froing about who's the good guy, right? Who is the one who is open to cooperation? And my sense is very much that this is a brilliant political play by Labour to try and recover some moral high ground with the Remainers that they have lost to the Lib Dems. Whether it actually gets the country out of a no-deal Brexit is very much more questionable. Because, Robert, the context for this is the Article 50 clock is still ticking down. And if nothing happens between now and the end of October, then we leave whether there is a deal or not a deal. So you've got these two things colliding with each other. One is MPs who don't want a no-deal Brexit. And the other is Downing Street seems very happy with a no-deal Brexit. And as you wrote in your column this week, the only certain way for MPs to stop a no-deal Brexit is to bring down the government because there's some other ways they could look at, which we're going to come on to in a moment. But really, the only clear way is to essentially push Mr Johnson out of power. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of other ideas that are mooted, but the only absolute guaranteed is to bring down this this government. The reason why this caretaker government idea has gained currency is because of the premise put around, particularly by Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's aide-de-camp, as it were, or Boris Johnson's his aide-de-camp, we're never sure. But anyway, that he could actually run down the clock on an election and not have the date of the election until after we have left the European Union. That's the key issue here. That's why the caretaker government comes up. If you bring him down early enough, it is possible that he cannot do that. I also think it's possible that if he were confronted with the reality that people would create a caretaker government, that he would agree to a general election before October 31st. But that's jumping over several hurdles to get to that. The funny thing about what happened this week is that in one sense, it felt very momentous. Another, it was nothing more than we knew, which was that Jeremy Corbyn would expect and try to lead any caretaker government and that there were people who had problems with it. All he did was articulate this in a letter. And I think Miranda was completely right. It was all about internal politics. It was about pushing back the Lib Dems and regaining some Remainer cred. And I think that was the fundamental issue here. But the one thing that I do think was established clearly and is, I think, impossible to work around is that you cannot have a caretaker government without Jeremy Corbyn at its head. He has to be an active participant in this and he and his supporters will have to feel that he is leading it or they will not back it. So, Maddie, let's have a quick talk about a report the IFG did this week that came out, which looked at why we're talking about this in the first place, which is all the other reasons and ideas that could be put forward to stop a no-deal Brexit. And the IFG, a very well-respected think tank, basically concluded that MPs have less options they think they could do. And to Robert's point, that in fact, many of the things MPs could vote or legislation they could pass on could just be ignored by Boris Johnson. Yeah, I think the the challenge for MPs is that I think you've really talked about it a bit. 
it's sort of difficult to get a majority behind one plan. So although we've talked about uh, no confidence vote, you are relying on a handful of Conservative MPs being willing to bring down the government in the first place before you even get to take a government. I think that probably more likely you would get a majority in favour of legislation, which would have to essentially try and force the Prime Minister to go to Brussels to ask for an extension, just because it's a bit more of a lowest common denominator plan. You know, everyone can kind of get behind the idea of asking for an extension. I think the challenge is what you then do afterwards. But the issue for passing legislation is that MPs would have to then take control of the Commons order paper to be able to pass that legislation. And you would have to have a majority of MPs willing to back both sort of taking control of the order paper and then also every stage of that legislation as it goes through the House. So there are some opportunities that have been discussed, but you would expect the Speaker to be having to essentially allow amendments to motions which normally would not be amendable to actually get to that point. So I think we have to wait and see how the politics plays out in the autumn in terms of whether or not MPs are successful. But I think that that may be a plan that's easier for MPs to get behind, but it still contains quite a lot of hurdles. It's very time-consuming, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Now, this has happened before for listeners to this podcast when we talked about Cooper Bowles, which was not a family law firm, but a piece of legislation put forward, which forced then Prime Minister Theresa May to go off to Brussels and request an extension. Now, the issue this time is, could the Johnson government just ignore that? Because if they do, then there's not really much point for MPs spending the week and a half, as Robert said, they don't have much time at all by trying to pass this. Are there any precedents, Maddie, about whether if a bill was passed, Boris could just ignore it? It depends what the bill says. So if the bill says you need to go to the EU and ask for an extension, well, Johnson could go and ask for an extension. doesn't mean he's going to agree one. And obviously, you've got to agree it with the EU27. They might have certain conditions that they want the UK to comply with. You know, they're going to be saying, well, you've just had an extension. What are you going to do with this next one? And it's really difficult to pass a piece of legislation that will actually be able to completely direct Johnson, I mean, they could, for example, say in the legislation, then if the EU offers something different to an extension proposed by Parliament, Johnson has to come back and Parliament has to vote on it or he has to agree it. But it would be a pretty big step for the Prime Minister to ignore an Act of Parliament passed by a majority of MPs directing him to act. But given that international negotiations are conducted under the Royal Progressive, you know, the government is in control of international negotiations. It's very difficult to see how Parliament could put itself in a position where essentially they were trying to conduct international negotiations through a prime minister. It's definitely not straightforward, but I also don't think we should underestimate the political implications of passing legislation like that. It would be very challenging for Johnson to ignore that. I think it would be illegal for him well, yeah. to ignore it. And that has implications, I think, for the civil service and the whole machinery of government. But I thought you made an extraordinarily important point, which was that you can mandate him to seek an extension, but you can't mandate the terms of that extension. He can go there and say, well, we tried in good faith seeking extension, but they wouldn't give it us on terms we wanted, so we had to reject it. I think the only way in legislative terms you could do this is to mandate him to revoke Article 50 yeah. on the understanding that there would then be an election or a referendum to validate that position. I think that's the only surefire way Parliament can do this. That does strike me as a very dangerous thing, Miranda, to revoke Article 50, because first of all, I'm not it was quite... a good idea. I just said it was an idea. <laughs> no, no, but I just think there's a very big difference in the public's mind of delaying Brexit, trying to get there and actually saying, you know what, because once you've revoked Article 50, yes, you can trigger it again at some point in the future. But the clear signal from that would be is Parliament has stopped Brexit. And at that point, I think there probably would be repercussions on that, both from MPs and probably from the wider public. 
Well, it's interesting, this question of when political repercussions kick in. If you look at what happened to the May government, it was really from the 29th of March. So when Brexit didn't happen as scheduled, literally the graph just starts to crash down in terms of... And the Brexit party goes up. And the Brexit party goes up. So even delay will be seen as very dangerous, particularly for the Johnson government, because they have made October the 31st into the day of rapture. This idea that we leave has become the absolute, as they say, be all and end all, do or die, come what may. So for them to even delay or to accept an instruction to delay, like Robert, I think Maddie's point about whether there's a way of playing the instructions so that you fail. And again, of course, it just feeds into a potential election campaign where you are saying, I, Boris Johnson, the Tribune of the People, I'm asking you to reject this parliament, which keeps trying to stop Brexit. And that's their one message. And it's a very powerful message. And I think that's also why all this activity around potential caretaker governments is going on, because Parliament has failed so far to take the initiative, really, and has failed at every opportunity. And so there's this sense of all of the opposition benches, which is now quite a complicated place. You've got a government that's got a working majority of one. You've got Labour people who've peeled off who are actually pro-Brexit, who probably wouldn't bring down the government. You've got all of these split independents, some of whom will work with Corbyn, some of whom won't. There's a sense of frenzied activity as the clock is, as you say, ticking down. I just want to come back on one point Miranda made, because although I agree with it, which is that you would unleash extraordinary demons if you try to stop Brexit, I think we've got to a point for the Remainers where there is no choice about this. If you want to stop this, you're going to have to unleash those demons, face the voters and make the argument. And they may well lose, but I don't think they have a choice about doing that anymore, if that's their position. So let's go back to this caretaker go. And we have the confidence vote. Maybe in September, Labour said this week they would bring it within days of Parliament returning from its recess on September the 3rd. It may not win it in September, so it might try again in October after party conference season. But at some point this autumn, we have a confidence vote and Boris Johnson's majority disappears and his government falls. Maddie, can you then walk us through what happens at that point, just very much on the constitutional basis, and then we'll come into the politics of it? So I think the first thing to say is we haven't tested this process before. So we don't really quite know how it will play out in practice. Now, usually sort of the convention is that if a prime minister has lost confidence of the commons, he would resign. There's obviously been some speculation recently about whether or not he would resign immediately. I guess to start from the beginning, it triggers a 14-day period. So losing a vote of confidence, there's 14 days during which at some point either the current government or an alternative caretaker government could try and win a vote of confidence, which would stop a general election from happening immediately. If no one can win a vote of confidence during that period, then an election will happen and it's the incumbent prime minister who will set the date of the election. And that's what's really important. So if there's no way of demonstrating that there is a majority for an alternative government during that period, then Boris Johnson would be the person who would set the date for the election. And that's the reason why MPs are very concerned by that in case he doesn't ask for an extension to hold an election and, you know, we leave without a deal in the middle of an election campaign. So what we would probably expect is that someone would try and demonstrate that there is a sort of alternative, there's a majority of an alternative government and then they would have to be invited by the Queen to form a government and then that government would test the confidence of the House. And if they lost that vote 
because they didn't have the competence of the House, then they would be the ones who would set the date for the election. So it's quite complicated at that stage. And the politics during that period is going to be extremely, extremely important because we don't quite know how it will play out. So on the politics of this stage, Miranda, there's been a lot of talk about this caretaker government that would emerge to revoke Article 50, request delay, do whatever it is. And that was really pushed forward with the Corbyn letter this week. And this is the most significant effort we've seen to stop a no-deal Brexit because Mr Corbyn has always said we need to stop a Tory Brexit, we need to stop a no-deal Brexit. But he's not actually done anything to now. And he wrote to the leaders of all the opposition parties except Change UK to say to them, I will form a temporary time-limited government that will do one thing, which is to extend Article 50 and then hold an election. And the point of that was to try and say to people, no, to be the Liberal Democrats, I understand you might not want me as your long-term Prime Minister, but we all want to stop no deal, so let's do this. And he put that letter out there. It got a good response from the SNP, who, as we discussed last week, are now having a love-in with Labour. The Green Party, the Welsh Nationalists, they all said, fine, we're on board. But where it became very complicated, first of all, is the Liberal Democrats under their new leader, Joe Swinson, who straight away said, this thing is nonsense. So it's very interesting, this, because Joe Swinson, really within days of becoming Liberal Democrat leader, is under the spotlight to an extraordinary degree and is facing the dilemma that always faces the third party leader in a two party system. If you have any degree of success or chance of influence, which is you then have to choose which set of your coalition of support you're going to really anger. So Joe Swinson has said up to this point that Corbyn is absolutely beyond the pale and somebody who she could not support seeing in Downing Street. All the time she's being asked to explain this position and actually starting to give some caveats. And they are now willing to have talks, but still saying Corbyn can't be the head of any caretaker administration. It's been joked about on Twitter as the meatloaf defence. You know, I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. I'll do anything to stop no deal Brexit, but I won't do that. And it's really how do you justify your idea that the leader of the opposition, however much you disapprove of him, is so unacceptable that you won't stop what you've described as the biggest crisis facing the country since the Second World War. It's an absolutely hideous dilemma for her. It's complicated also by the fact that some of these other people who left the Labour Party and the Conservative Party in February to form Change UK, some of whom have now joined the Lib Dems, others of whom are still knocking about on the back benches as independents, they are also split on this. Sarah Wollaston, who became a Liberal Democrat this week, wants to go into the talks. Chukra Amuna, who joined the Lib Dems a few weeks ago, he doesn't want anything to do with Corbyn. It's incredibly complex as to where people have staked their territory. Robert, when this played out over 24 hours, it began as Miranda with Joe Swinson saying, no, we're not doing this because Corbyn is a threat to national security, economic security, plus anti-Semitism, plus people like Chukramana. You've taken Conservative seats in any forthcoming election. That as well. But then the pressure on her was quite great, external pressure, but also some internal pressure. I think there were some of the Lib Dems 14 MPs who actually felt, you know what, we're dismissing this too quickly because if it 
it does get to that absolute crunch point in October when everything else has failed. There's no extension. The EU's hell for leather, no deal. We're hell for leather, no deal. At that point, are the Lib Dems really going to not do the last thing they could do to stop no deal Brexit? So that backtrack that Joe Swinson made where she said, well, actually, I will meet with Corbyn. And she said, we need to have a plan. I don't think your plan works, but let's get a plan together. It did strike me that she was softening a bit under that pressure. I don't know the extent to which she's softening her fundamental position or to the extent to which she's softening her positioning. I think it's not the same thing. I think that Corbyn has set an absolute death trap for the Lib Dems on this one. There is a no-win situation for them. Either they do as you said, they refuse to put him into a caretaker government position, in which case they can be blamed by everybody for failing to stop no deal if that's what happens. Or they put him in, it works, and hey, presto, he's now the leader of the opposition to no-deal Brexit. He's restored all his cred with the Remainer side of the public and the Lib Dems' unique selling point is gone. On top of which, where they're challenging in Tory seats, they've put Jeremy Corbyn in power and that doesn't help either. So they're completely caught on this one. And the only way to spring this trap from their point of view is the one that she's now tried to do, which is to say, well, look, we'll talk to you, but the truth is you can't assemble the numbers because there are other people here. And the numbers around this are so tight that four or five people either way makes all the difference. Dominic Grieve, interestingly, today said he would not facilitate a Corbyn government. So that's one down. Sylvia Herman, the independent Ulster unionist, wouldn't put Corbyn in power. There's two or three Brexit-minded Labour independents like Frank Field and Kate Hoey, who probably won't put him in. Ian Austin has said he won't put him in. So I was counting it up last night and reckoned that he'd already need around seven or eight Conservatives to overcome it. And I don't think they're there. So I think... Tactically, what Joe Swinson is going to do and what she has to do is to appear to be interested while pointing out that it can't actually work. And I think that's what Mr Corbyn is doing as well, that the Labour leadership can also count numbers. And they will know full well that those independents, the Change UK and then also the breakaway Change UK, it's 10 of them in total, are all Remainers. They all don't like Jeremy Corbyn and they also don't want to lose their seats. And they're probably all going to lose their seats if we have an election. So they're not going to bring it down. Finally, I just want to ask each of you the chances of you think this thing coming together, if it's going to happen when we're in that absolute moment where this is all just August Fancy talk. Maddie? I don't know. I think if it works, it's going to be really late in the day in October. I think that there's no way it would work in September. I think a lot of MPs are going to wait, sort of sit on their hands until we get a few days out from the 31st of October. And Miranda? I think that this is such strange territory that we're in that we'd be mad to dismiss it as a possibility, even a slim one. And I think in October, it might look like such an emergency that who knows? Robert? I I broadly agree with both Miranda and Maddie. I think whatever happens will happen very, very late in the day. But the numbers are so tight, you'd be foolish to discount anything. And I think there's one theory I'm just going to leave out there that might happen, which is that the Johnson government does collapse, that it loses a confidence vote, and then nothing emerges from that. And that's one thing that does worry centrist MPs, which means that we have an election and we have a no-deal Brexit, which is, in theory, the worst outcome for Remainers. I do think it's possible that he could lose the confidence vote, and if it really looked like the caretaker government was about to be assembled, that he would say, OK, to prevent that, I will call an election in time for... Brexit, so you will have the choice before Brexit date. Well, we will see if the caretaker government does emerge and whether 
Jeremy Corbyn, Ken Clark, Harriet Harman or some other mysterious figure becomes our very temporary Prime Minister. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Robert, Miranda and Maddie for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda and Salome Palizzi. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.